I genuinely believe that one of the biggest challenges of modernity is financial illiteracy. There are nuts and bolts fundamentals around finance that if you implement them and you do them over a long period of time, it's almost impossible not to become wealthy. It is a life skill that is unlike any other in terms of making your life easier. That's Andrew Craig, author of the best-selling book, How to Own the World. Now, if you've never heard of it, no, it's not about a rather megalomaniacal desire to be a world dictator. It's actually a personal finance book on how we can all become more wealthy. I wanted to interview Andrew because of a simple thing I do each year to tackle my personal growth. I pick a word that represents an area in my life I want to focus on during the year. And then every month I ask myself, what have I done this month regarding that word? Last year, my word was finance, or to put it even more bluntly, it was money. I feel like there is this default assumption that entrepreneurs or people in business actually understand money. And that's just not the case, at least not in my experience. I know and understand unit economics and the things I need to know for business, but that doesn't translate very well to how I handle money in my own life, in the day-to-day, where it makes an impact for me. And this is important because being an entrepreneur can be a bit of an all-or-nothing game when it comes to money. It costs you much more than you earn, especially at the beginning. So on this basis, you have nothing for a long time. I've spent years not having any money and not caring about money, living very frugally. And then, as regular listeners will know, I had a daughter and it really hit me how important money actually was. So I decided to learn about it. Now, this wasn't easy. I personally felt, especially as an entrepreneur, that admitting that I now wanted to have money and understand how to take control of it was quite difficult. It's a bit of a taboo. And if you follow my journey, you'll know that I build my main company, Heights, in public. But I don't actually talk much about what I do at Secret Leaders. So here's something honest and vulnerable. Until using this word, I had never taken money out of the business. Everything it made went back in. So we could invest in the show and eventually people to grow it so we can have a team that, you know, is here and makes it today. And I'm proud of those choices. They helped me bootstrap it, but it didn't actually help me financially. And with a daughter and new pressures, even that needed to change. So last year, thanks to this word, I started to take a salary from this show too. And that felt kind of weird at first, actually, almost, I mean, almost like stealing. And therein lies just one insight into the bizarre relationship entrepreneurs can have with money and their business. Anyway, that word and my needs acted as a catalyst to focus on money openly with less shame. And with my basic needs met, I was ready to learn. So I asked everyone I knew from all different walks of life, what books should I read? What did I need to learn? And out of the bunch of books I was recommended, How to Own the World by Andrew Craig was the one that came up the most. And when I read it, I could see why. It was transformational. And listening to this episode, you're going to see why. Andrew has this knack of explaining these seemingly complex and boring topics really clearly. Because this stuff is just so fucking important, whatever stage you're at. And I wanted to get him on the podcast now because it's January, when a lot of us are looking to improve our lives and make changes that might actually stick. And I want you to have the kind of experience this year that I had last year. It's time to upgrade what you know about money. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta. In late 2009, early 2010, Andrew was working for an investment bank in New York. As he was getting to grips with how the financial world worked, he started to realise something. Even captains of industry and master of the universe investment bankers can be incredibly bad when it comes to the nuts and bolts of their own personal finances, like ISAs and pensions. They can be a brilliant um, mathematical genius credit derivative salesperson or a corporate financier working on massive M&A deals. But then you say to them, well, you know, what what are you doing with your pension? And they like, you know, their eyes glaze over and they're like, I have no idea. And so if, if even sort of really smart investment bankers are rubbish at that, then what chance does everyone else have? Actually, I was in Miami on holiday um, and I met this couple, my, my then girlfriend and I met this couple and, and it was a very successful fashion photographer who was just saying, I'll, I don't trust the finance industry. I'll never invest in 
anything other than property and cash, you know, and, and it, the guy was clearly very successful. It was like a top fashion photographer. And, and I just, and I and suddenly I thought to myself, I've had this conversation like dozens and dozens of times over many years. And it's a tragedy because if people understand the nuts and bolts of how to sort of safely invest in financial markets and capital markets, it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to just be, you know, cash and property and being scared of the, the stock market's risky. You know, that's just a completely fallacious position. And th- that was the seed of, I need to do something about this. Like any great, you know, good idea, great idea. I shouldn't flatter myself to say it was a great idea. But, um, you know, it was just, I, th- I was constantly bumping up against this theme of like people just saying, oh, I, you know, I don't understand finance. When Andrew left that job and returned to the UK, he couldn't get these conversations out of his head. He wanted to do something to help people understand personal finance. And I basically started writing kind of angry young man essays about, you know, what is a share? What is a bond? What are, why is gold important? What's inflation? What, what are interest rates? You know, how do you invest in the stock market in a considered way? How, how, how important is your age? You know, all these themes... And over the course of several months, that coalesced into about 100,000 words. He put it all up on a website, Plain English Finance, which still exists today, but has changed quite a bit since then. They're now a company that, like his book, aims to increase financial literacy. But whilst Andrew had all his thoughts out there, were people really going to read them? My cousin said to me, like, nobody wants to read 3,000 words about inflation, like, you know, on a website and then click to go to the next bit about... Why don't you turn this into an ebook? Andrew self-published the ebook in 2012 and then released a physical copy in 2013. Very quickly, we were getting lots of kind of five-star reviews that weren't written by family members um, and selling a surprising number of copies. And and then yeah, since then it's been like a nine, ten-year journey where it's now in its that book, How to Own the World's in its third edition, um, with a really big publisher with Hodder and Stoughton, who were great. It's usually kind of in the top. I don't know, two or three personal finance books in the UK, if you look at Amazon. And um, we, we all know, uh, we can all be quite cynical about Amazon rankings, but it's been, it's been knocking around um, as an Amazon bestseller for, for quite a long time. So um, hopefully there's some validity there. And so, yeah, that's the story, really. Sort of angry young man wrote lots of essays and stitched it together into a book. And 10 years later, it, I still am really, really honoured and flattered by the fact that people have got a lot out of it and got a lot out of the key themes in it. When I started focusing on finance, I thought a lot about why I hadn't before. The finance world often feels pretty dense. It has its own language, lots of seemingly complex terms, and I think a lot of people, like I did, feel like it's not something we really want to get into. For Andrew, who up until last year still worked in investment banks, having a basic knowledge of finance is a skill that far too many lack. What I quite often say is that learning how to drive your finances, and it's a bit of a cheesy analogy, I'll grant, but you know, I labour the point somewhat in the book. Learning how to drive your finances so you can be effective and, and benefit from the amazing things that financial literacy and it, using capital markets can give you is no harder and takes no more time than learning how to drive a car. And, and we have this crazy, what I view as a societal blind spot, which is that everyone thinks it's really normal, or the vast majority of people in modern societies think it's normal to learn how to drive a car. But something that really genuinely takes no more time, understanding how to drive your finances and what the nuts and bolts of capital markets are, is crazy and complicated, and that's for rich people. And, that, and the important point there is saying that financial markets are for rich people gets correlation and causality the wrong way round. Because it's like, oh, that's just something for rich people. No, it's that people who learn about financial markets are far more likely to be rich. And actually, you know, the, the richest 1% in the world are, in, especially nowadays, where the world is genuinely far more meritocratic than it used to be. I mean, and just to unpack that quickly, when the Sunday Times Rich List was first published in 1987, so the thousand richest people in Britain, something like 65% of them were landowning aristocracy and or inherited their wealth because their great, 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 great grandfather, you know, saved the king by whacking, you know, beheading somebody who was creeping up behind him or whatever nefarious reason that somebody became an aristocrat 500 years ago. 500 years later, their progeny, their descendants were still basically having all the money. Nowadays, the Sunday Times Rich List is almost, it's 90% plus self-made. Now, you can argue about how do you define self-made, because if Stelios Hajianu of EasyJet's parents help him buy his first 737, he has a big advantage over you or me trying to start EasyJet, clearly. Um, But broadly, the direction of travel is the world's become more meritocratic. 
And when the world's more meritocratic, you know, one of the biggest vectors for personal enrichment and success is understanding financial markets. Why is that? Well, it's because of the power of compounding. Uh, and I use the example to illustrate the power of compounding. If somebody puts £5,000 in an investment account of some kind the day a child is born. So if you're lucky enough that, you know, our great aunt Agatha can do that for your child. And I appreciate not everyone is, but it's just a thought experiment. Somebody puts £5,000 in an investment account and you're able to achieve 10% per annum. And the reason it's 10%, there are two reasons. One, because it keeps the math the maths easy. And the other I'll come on to, which is, well, 10% in an era of 2% interest rates. That's just nonsense. What, you know, what a load of nonsense. We'll come back to that. But £5,000 invested the day a child is born at a 10% annualized rate of return. 55 years later, which under UK law is the first year you can legally retire, that £5,000 with not, no further investment whatsoever, just one £5,000 investment, will have grown to £945,000. Right? Now, you've got a inflation has a role to play blah 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 but it's just a it's a it's something that illustrates the power of compounding that you know 5000 becomes 5500 becomes 6150 and people that just illustrates the incredible power of compounding to make you wealthy so so if you if you are somebody who benefits from compounding over a long period of time you have a very decent chance of becoming quite wealthy and if you're somebody who doesn't benefit from compounding, you're going to struggle, particularly if you're doing the reverse of compounding, which is using debt and particularly credit card debt or you know any high interest debt, which is what too many people in our society are doing. Just to come back to, oh, well, you know, 10%, what a ridiculous number. That's just impossible nonsense. It's not because the S&P 500 or the S&P as was from before the 1950s, going back all the way to 1872, to January 1872, U.S. shares, U.S. equities have returned an average of more than 9% per annum. So actually, if you've just been in the U.S. market over 55 years, and actually, even more excitingly, in the U.K. market, the smaller companies listed on the London stock market. So the London Business School professors, Elroy Dimson and Paul Marsh, quite famously published this piece about smaller companies. And they showed that from 1955 until the end of last year, the smallest companies in the London stock market have averaged more than 15% per annum. And actually, if you're making 15% per annum, you start making some very serious money really quite quickly, um, You know, certainly over a 15, 20, 25-year period. Now, there are all sorts of caveats to that because that, the problem with smaller companies is they might have a plus 30% year, but then they have a minus 60% year. Uh, and, now, and so uh, the, the tyranny of averages over the long term, it looks great. There's 15% per, per annum you know, for back to 1955. But in order to benefit from that, you have to understand how to treat volatility. Um, and you know, these are all the themes I cover in my book. And how do you treat volatility? You buy every month without fail over a very long period of time. And, then, and so that's the next insight, which I try to articulate in the book, is set up something sensible and invest every month without fail for the duration of your adult life from the minute you can save money to the minute you might want to benefit from having done that. The worst thing you can possibly do is pay attention to the news or you know, try to time the market, or think I'm going to buy this this year and that next year. You just own the market. You know, ten percent is a good rule of thumb. Ten percent of whatever you earn, and if they invest it in a sensible mix of assets, with a weather eye on how old they are, there's a very very high chance you can become wealthy, even if you're on a sort of average wage, um, as long as you start early. And you know, this is a this is the example of a child having 5,000 quid at zero and then a million quid at 55 is, it's, you know, how can we have a pensions crisis with that being the case? Um, but, you know, most people sadly don't think about it until they're, you know, rather older. And that's part of the big challenge. And, we, and I think as a society, we really do need to change that because, you know, I describe financial literacy and the, the considered use of, of financial products and capital markets as a silver bullet, and, and, and as a silver bullet for individuals, because it's much more likely that you as an individual will become wealthy and life will get much easier. But also, sort of almost as importantly, or maybe more importantly, for society as a whole. And the reason for that, you know, there are, there are manifold, there are a number of reasons, but that's basically because every person who sorts their finances out is, not, is, is less likely to be dependent on the state. And, you know, they're, and they're, so they're going to be more likely to be paying tax and, and being a net contributor to the state, not, not somebody taking from the state. And they're also going to be much more likely to be uh, in a position to invest capital in companies that, and what do companies do, actually? A lot of them, they solve intractable human problems. And whether that's a biotech company trying to cure cancer or a forestry company that makes toilet paper and nappies, you know, 
that's why I think people forget this disconnect between what, what is the stock market and what are capitalistic companies. Well, in the main, they're doing great stuff like putting baked beans in your supermarket or bread or, you know, or they're a distribution company that's bringing the eggs. Okay, so a thought experiment, which occurred to me whilst you were speaking, if, if let's say every... Let's say that we uh, we tackle the problem in the most intelligent way. You're never going to do a very good job, no offence, no matter how good you are as an educator at educating one-day-olds to put their money away. So assuming that your market is parents yeah, um, yeah. and assuming that the most logical thing that you can do to make this an impactful decision is educate schools, educate parents and educate anyone like that has like the next generation available to make this kind of thing a reality and let's say that the uptake is really high and everyone does do it doesn't that then create its own sort of inflation where if everyone's rich in a country then the value of money and relative wealth just goes sky high anyway so you kind of end up in the same problem and it and does it also arb away the super normal returns that you potentially get from equities yeah yeah maybe but but i think We'd have to go a long way. Yeah, if a hundred percent of people were investing in in equities, you know. But I actually think, I mean, look, it's a very interesting intellectual argument that it, that merits kind of an economics PhD and the rest, right? But more broadly, in the in the meantime, there's no question that. So I've just spent eight years specialising in life sciences, so biotech, medtech, you know, companies working in that sector, companies trying to cure cancer, tr- companies trying to diagnose cancer much, much more cheaply than is the current paradigm without injuring patients with horrible biopsies under general anaesthetic, companies doing really remarkable things. And they are absolutely starved for capital. You know, that it is a night and day, up all night struggle to go and find enough millions of pounds to conduct clinical trials and, you know, press forward with the science. Ultimately, it's about sort of recalibration of our relationship as a society and as a species, frankly, with how we go about refashioning the periodic table to to benefit us in terms of health, wealth, longevity, you know, comfort, peace. And I think whilst we're a very debt-focused society, I just think that's probably a slower route to solving all these intractable problems and funding companies that might cure cancer or sort out clean energy generation or whatever else. There's not enough risk capital to do those things. I mean, the Victorians, when they built the railways, I think I'm right in saying it was something ridiculous, like 15 or 20 or even more than 20% of GDP for many years to build the railways. And we've never seen anything like it since. So I think it's it's a very complex, interrelated, nuanced you know, debate, thought experiment, for sure. But my basic belief is if we were much more of an equity culture, we would accelerate human progress um, because there'd be much more capital for science and tech and R&D. And we could go a long way further in that direction, you know, and sort of fundamentally change how we function as societies. We, You know, we live in this capitalist society where I think most people have had very, very little experience of the cold face of capitalism. And I genuinely believe that. And, And I guess that was part of why I wanted to write the book, because you know, Niall Ferguson, the Harvard professor of economic history, describes the technology of financial markets as an addendum to like property rights, if you like, as one of the killer apps of modernity. And you would never have had the aviation industry or skyscrapers or the healthcare industry or, you know, anything like automotive, roads, shipping, shipping containers, the explosion of wealth and, and actually the uplift in the in the human experience in the last two centuries, which is all too seldom dwelled upon by people. People are very, very good at being pessimistic and, and saying how rubbish everything and how awful the world is because of Ukraine and the cost of living crisis and whatever else it might be this year. But actually, the trajectory of the last two centuries has been magnificent for human beings. You know, a four-decade increase in life expectancy. We live much healthier lives. Infant mortality has just been driven from something huge to something very small. And all of that, actually, my my position is, None of that would, progress would have happened without the, the fundamental inventions of the stock market, the bond market, and currency, and fractional reserve banking, and central banks. And like you know, the, the stuff we get to do today, it, our existence is immeasurably better and more enjoyable than the stuff people got to do a century ago, or two, or three, or four centuries ago. And yes, yeah, so I'm labouring the point, but my considered belief is that equity, you know, if we weren't able to syndicate risk and pool capital. You never would have had the kind of voyages of discovery and Christopher Columbus and 
you know, even royalty in, in the 15th, 16th century, the reason stock markets were created really was to explore the new world and fund the, the, the voyages to the East Indies and, and the Caribbean and wherever else. And, and without the invention, without a bunch of, you know, amusing blokes in comedy um, 17th century outfits drinking coffee in London coffee shops or in Amsterdam and Rotterdam coming up with this fabulous idea of like, here's a piece of paper. If I put some money in, that piece of paper represents that share of this sea voyage to go to the and find spices and metals and you know timber and whatever else in the in the new world without that invention very little of the progress of the last two centuries could have happened or would have happened and i think we should celebrate it a bit more If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So whilst whilst we were talking, mm. I was like, it suddenly occurred to me, you know what I've actually got on my desk? I've got notes from your book that I was I was taking. So I was going to say, you know what I'd love to do? We're talking about turning these complex ideas and making them simple. Well, I managed to turn, not, not to discredit your book, but I think you'll take it as a compliment. I managed to turn almost all of the ideas, the big ideas that is around money into just three pages of notes because I was trying to keep it super simple for myself. These are some of the headline terms that you referred to in your in your book. Uh, cash, property, bonds, uh, stocks, pensions, ICES, obviously n- NICES, LICES, or leases, whatever, spread betting for the, you know, for the pro, we don't need to go into that. And then the type of investment, you know, the types of investment vehicles that exist. But there's actually not that much, you know, this is really interesting. I was listening to... Oh, well, obviously, sorry, I've got to t- turn on the other page and see commodities uh, funds. And then obviously, you're quite a big fan of um, of investing in gold and silver. I don't know if that still re- reigns true. But these were pretty much the summaries of um, of your big concepts about money. As in, these are all the different ways that money kind of exists in the world. Yeah. There's not that many of them. Of course, there's new asset classes as well, like crypto, which obviously you don't go into too much. But fundamentally, that you could count them on two hands. There's not that many. What are the what 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 are the ones we need to know about? What are the ones that like you know you're just like you know what if I gun to my head, aliens land and say explain to me like the the five most important concepts of money that I need to know to operate on this planet. What are you going to say to them? What are the absolute must knows? Okay. So so the first thing to say is the reason the book's called How to Own the World. It's the insight that. If you use a mix of all assets in all major geographical regions, which, by the way, is what the Rothschilds have done, Oxford and Cambridge University, Harvard and, you know, 
all the smartest, richest people in the world have done this for two centuries or more. If you have exposure to the US, Europe and Asia broadly, and then across real estate, property, cash, bonds, which is related to cash, and then shares and, and commodities, that's the owning the world piece. Geographically diversified and diversified by asset. But then the next, the final bit, which actually I didn't cover in How to Own the World, and I covered in my second, if you like, my workbook, but is is available as a five email series on the opinion section of our website for free, is basically this idea of 100 minus your age, which is the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle, which is basically that those different asset classes have this different risk characteristics and different volatility. So, you're, you know, some of them is about the return on your money and some of them is about the return of your money. So, you know, cash is safe. Bonds that pay an interest rate is safe. Shares, particularly biotech or smaller companies, are very volatile and they can go up 50% and down 50%. And, and, and it's, the, it's the considered use of the right mix over a lifetime of investing that if he likes the kind of investing panacea, the kind of the one rule to rule them all or whatever. And, and so to ex- explain 100 minus your age, it's actually quite simple. It's basically if you subtract your age from 100, that gives you a percentage which tells you how to split your investments between aggressive or more risky stuff and defensive, you know, less risky stuff. So, so just to unpack that, so if you're 30, you could probably have about 70% of what you're investing in riskier stuff. So that's basically equities or crypto, potentially, if you're a fan of crypto. Probably, you know, 65-5 in favor of equities versus crypto, in my view. But anyway, that's just me. And then 30% in cash, bonds, uh, maybe gold, something that's more defensive. And if you're 70, it should be the other way around. It should be 70% defensive and 30% um, aggressive. And the reason for that is is because, and it's something called life cycle investment, but it's really important because if you're 30 and you've managed to save, let's say, 10 grand, you know, you've worked in a bar in your 20s, you've messed around a bit, you've had a lot of fun, you've gone to a B for loads, you know, you've gone traveling, whatever, and all you've, you've scraped together 10 grand by the time you're like 30, which is probably quite a good achievement for most 30-year-olds. And, and you're fully invested in the market. You're actually 100% aggressive. You're just in the, um, a stock market. And then there's a stock market crash, which happens roughly every 10 years. You're going to be down about 50%. So your 10 grand in your investment account is now five grand. That's quite annoying. You know, it's like, ugh, you know, I spent all that time squirreling away this money. I'm down. I've lost 50%. I'm down five grand. But it's a very, very different kind of annoying to if you're 60 and you've spent a lifetime building wealth and you now have a, let's say you're a reasonably highly paid professional, you're a lawyer or a estate agent or an entrepreneur or whatever. And you've got a million, just for the sake of time, you've got a million quid in your investment accounts and you're 100% in the market because you haven't thought about this 100 minus your age idea. And there's a stock market crash, which of course, this has happened to so many people in 08, 07, 08, 99, 2000, in the last few years of the coronavirus crash. And now your million quid a month later is 500 grand. Now, if you've gone from 10 grand to five grand when you're 30, that's a very, very different problem from going from a million to half a million when you're 60. And it's for that reason that as you go, because obviously when you're 30, you've got the rest of your life to to build back. And in absolute terms, it's only five grand. But when you're 60, you don't, and it's half a million. And, and of, but, but those both of those percentage changes are the same for the 60-year-old and 30-year-old. So that's the final piece of the jigsaw. So, so the key takeaways are you need to think about all the major asset classes in the three major geographical regions of the world. Because in a year like 07, 08, the stock market halves, but gold goes up 20% and oil hits an all-time high. You know, There's negative correlation between the different asset classes. And then you just need to think, it's actually a very elegant and relatively simple way of thinking about life. You just need to think about your age and stage and your attitude to risk in terms of how you then mix those assets with aggressive versus defensive. But you know, if, if, if an alien was to say to me, what should a baby do? Well, a baby should just be 100% in the stock market, right? And, and that the easiest way to do that these days is you either buy the US stock market, the S&P 500, which is extremely easy to do. And in the UK, we're very fortunate. We have ISA accounting to tax efficiently and never pay any tax on that, which is amazing. Like far too few people are taking advantage of that reality. Or in this day and age, if you believe that like the last century was the American century, maybe the next century will be the Asian century or somewhere else in the world century, then um, you could consider buying what's called the MSCI world, which is not just 500 companies in America, it's 1,600 companies from all over the world. So you don't have to kind of overthink whether Brazil or India or China or Indonesia or wherever it's going to be the next 
Um, actually, that, that, that's the MSCI all world, which includes the developing world markets as well. But so sorry, that's a, a long answer. But but you know, basically, think about all asset classes and um, and have a weather eye on on your age and stage because it's important as you get older. It's more important to think about the return of your money, not the return on your money. But when you're young, you can make higher returns by investing in riskier stuff. And and just to like follow up on that point then, so how do you own the world? Like what do you really mean when you're saying how like how to own the world? I, I know that you've given a couple of examples there, but you know, put it even more directly, like what is your view on what people should do? And I guess you know it's one of those things where not financial advice for me, but you're like actual financial advisor, written a book, etc. So these are your views. Um, I found them to be super enlightening. That's why I want you to share them. So uh, as an FCA regulated individual and company, I, anybody watching this, it can't be construed as personal financial advice. Very importantly, that's because the advice that, you know, if a 30-year-old is worth 50 million quid because they've just sold their tech business, the right thing for them to do is entirely different to a 30-year-old who's still working in a bar and is lucky to save 100 quid a month, obviously, right? So personal circumstances are super, super important for, for your own decisions. But if there is painting with a broad brush, brush kind of big picture thing, as I said a minute ago, in Britain, we're hugely fortunate. We have basically the best financial services industry in the world. In many ways, it's actually even better than the one they have in the States. Um, so what should you do? Well, the first thing, you should, in my belief, you basically need to think about your pension and your ISA. And there is a bit of complexity around that because it depends whether you get an occupational pension from your employer, whether you have your own pension because you're an entrepreneur, or maybe you don't have a pension at the moment because because you're an entrepreneur, you need to keep all your cash by to fund this period of your life. But broadly, something, some sort of account that has a tax benefit, you save tax by having it. And so that will be an ISA or a pension account, or ideally both. And then if you can save and invest a certain percentage of everything you earn, and candidly, I'm an entrepreneur at the moment. I'm you know putting everything on black with my own company. And... Um, I am not, for the first time in my life, uh, well, there have been a couple of periods, I am not investing every month because I, I need all the cash to fund my existence because I'm not paying myself yet whilst I build the business up. But for somebody with a regular job, basically at least 10% of your income every month goes into a sensible account like an ISA. And then if you're young, you can put a large amount of that into the market. So all you need to do is have an ISA account with an investment platform Names would include Hargreaves, Lansdowne, or Interactive Investor, or AJ Bell, or whatever else. And then every month, buy direct debit, just buy equities. If you're young, because that point I made about it, it doesn't really matter if you're 30 and you lose some money. If you do that for the next 25 years, 30 years, and even if you're just investing 200 quid a month, or you know, like, let's say you can only afford 25 quid a month in your late 20s, and then you bump it up to 50 and 100 and 100 as you get older, and hopefully you earn a bit more, you'll be stunned by what that delivers you'll have an ISA account with tens if not hundreds of thousands of pounds in it by the time you're in your kind of 40s or 50s and you know at that point if you make 10% in a year when you have half a million quid you've just made another 50 grand and that's the whole that's why compounding is you know back back end weighted and great so investing monthly by direct debit but you, if, if you are risk averse you probably you, may, you maybe shouldn't just buy the market and to be clear the, the other point here is that I'm always talking about when I wrote an email about a year ago called First Principles, and it sort of explained what we focus on. What we focus on is that 10% of your income that you should invest every month without fail from the time you first start earning money to the time you've got a big pot of cash. And that doesn't really cater to shorter term considerations around saving money for a holiday or saving money for the deposit in a house. It's just a sort of thing you should have on autopilot. And that's what I'm talking about. And I think everyone should be doing that. And the other point to make is everybody should be investing. Very few people should be trading, and that and a big one of the problems of this era, particularly with crypto and the explosion in sort of influences on TikTok and YouTube and stuff, is there's a real confusion around the difference between trading and investing. And what we talk about is investing, something you do every month without fail, by direct debit, something simple. You know, as I say, just own the market boldly, and then trading, which is trying to decide today what's going to go up this week or this hour or whatever. And, you know, trading is, unless you are, unless you, it's probably, you need a degree's worth of knowledge, in my opinion, to be a good trader. You, you know, anybody tells you you can learn it in five minutes or spend, a, you know, an hour each week on it and be amazing at it. They might be able to do that because they've been doing it for 20 years. 
most people won't be able to unless they're incredibly bright and have an IQ of like 170. Like it just, and it, it really pains me. I describe it as, as basically people with white belts fighting black belts because they've never done any investment. They haven't sorted out NICER. They don't know what's in their pension. They're 27. And the first thing they do is go and trade crypto. Because the other thing about trading is trading works if you've already got 100 grand. And, you know, if you, if you, if you, you can spend a few hours a week on it, and you're quite experienced, you know what you're doing, you know how to use charts and stuff. Maybe you can make 2% a month if you're good. So you can make two grand a month in absolute terms and compound up. If you've got two grand, trading is a complete waste of your time and your time would be much better spent doing a lot of other things. And a real problem with the sort of Finfluencer world these days is there's all these kind of people online egging people on and promising them super normal terms because they're not regulated. And they're allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to do that as a regulated individual. And so that's another really important point. So, 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 so sorry, the investing piece is just do something every month that's relatively sensible into the market in a tax efficient account like an ISA or a pension and do it for 20 years. It's statistically highly likely that you'll have a pretty great result. So one thing I would just say is... What was very helpful to me reading your book um, is, I mean, there's two things I want to say. One is, you know, you'll be pleased to know that once I finished it, um, I'd already I'd already set up an ISA a couple of years ago, um, but my wife hadn't. And so one of the first things I did, I came back from, you know, a weekend of reading the book and um, sat down with my wife and we talked about, okay, the book says, now my mate Andrew, um, but the book um, says, you know, ultimately the target here is, you know, can we can we afford to save 20k a year each, um, which is a big, big statement. But £1,667 is the target amount in the UK for you to save every single month because um, that is a tax free allowance in an ISA. And therefore it is like the gold standard best opportunity you'll ever have to grow wealth, according to Magical Book. But 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 Dan, but but it's important to say that you know if somebody if a couple can save two hundred quid a month, you know to to be able to save eight hundred quid a month each, you have to be on a pretty high salary. You're right, you're right. So this is this is what I was going to say. So we worked out, um, and this is exactly where I was going to go with this. My wife immediately, as you would imagine, had a visceral reaction of like, I mean, where do you expect us to save that much money a month? We we can't. That's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And fortunately, I had in my arsenal, having read earlier, um, The Psychology of Money, which works really well. It's by Morgan Housel. I don't know if you've read it as well, but... Uh, I know. I, I love it. It's a, annoyingly be- much better than my book. Well, no, it's completely different. What I was going to say, I really recommend it to listeners as a complimentary to your book. And this is why... Uh, fortunately, my wife and I you know, were able to have like hard, difficult conversations and all this stuff together. Um, there's an amazing statement inside that book, which is essentially people think to raise your wealth, you have to raise your income. But that's not true. The real way to raise your wealth is to raise your humility. When you are in a capitalistic society and you are making choices about how much you earn after tax and therefore what you spend... As your salary goes up over time, etc., you consistently get caught into the trap of spending the money that you have because you want nice things, you want nice clothes, you want to live in a nicer house, you want to make all of these decisions. You talk about this a bit in your book as well. You say, you know, if you can't afford to do these things, move to Birmingham, move somewhere else. You don't have to live in central London. Like the most important things that you can do, which people don't, is try to prioritize how do I build long term wealth for myself so that I'm shifting now all of my priorities personally to say, I've set a target that every month, by default, as soon as I get my paycheck, I'm investing this much. The raising your humility bit, the intelligence of this is, okay, let's say, obviously, you want your nice car. You want you want to be driving your, your BMW on lease because, you know, you can. Let's just say that you had higher humility and you didn't care as much about those things. What you cared about was becoming wealthy. Suddenly, today, you're making choices like your not even having a car, let's say you're actually walking and taking the tube everywhere, or you've got a Fiat Punto. So all that matters is you have a mode of transport and your perception of how the world perceives you is totally skewed anyway. So you raise your humility, you make all these other choices, you live in a small flat instead of the big house until a time that you can change those things. But the one thing that stays consistent is you're putting that money away. And I was able to have a really, really good conversation with my wife about what are the things we're willing to sacrifice then? So like, these are the things we currently do up until I've read this book. These are all of the things we currently do as, you know, throughout the years I've gone from earning, you know, 12K a year for multiple years, where obviously at that point you can't put anything away to actually earning a reasonable salary and stuff. What are the choices you and I can make? 
what are the holidays we won't go on? What are the things we're going to do? So that we will prioritise this. And we've done it ever since, you know, we've actually been for the last four months putting that money away every single month. And actually, you know, because of the concept of understanding like the why we're doing it, it hasn't really resulted in any loss of lifestyle attitude from us whatsoever, because we appreciate we're making a really good decision for the long term. And so the principles in your book are valuable, but so is understanding the psychology underlying the principles and how they help you accumulate wealth. Well, and that, and that, so there's the other person there, which is, who's really well known and people have mixed feelings about is Robert Kiyosaki, you know, rich dad, poor dad, and, and but the simple idea of pay yourself first, because I think as long as everything you do comes after you've saved and invested 10% of your income, like if you then become wealthier, by all means have a BMW instead of a Fiat Punto. But, but it has to be after you've done that first 10% band into something. And the other thing to say, and I can't remember where this comes from, actually it might be Morgan Housel's book, thinking about it, but is that brilliant idea that one of the reasons we find this so difficult psychologically is that basically – the person that's going to benefit from you making that decision is you in 20 or 30 years' time. And when you contemplate you in 20 or 30 years' time, they are as much a stranger to you as, you know, let's say you're 30, as a 50 or 60-year-old person walking past you on the street. Like, from, like for us, for an older man walks past you on the high street. Like giving that person 400 grand because you've sacrificed and had a Fiat Punto for all of your 20s and 30s is just complete anathema to you psychologically. But, you know, the antidote to that is to know that, that problem of psychology and emotion that we have, and to just tough through that and be disciplined. But, but as you say, the marvellous thing about it is, and, and I think this is a universal experience, is the minute you set your affairs up to do that, the lifestyle sacrifice is nothing. Like, it, it, you, know, you know, if you're lucky enough to earn quite a lot as you get old, in your 40s, whatever, let's say, you know, most of your grocery shop isn't going to change that much. My living costs today, I mean, my rent's higher because I like having a bigger house with two kids and a garden and whatever else. But but, but actually, it's quite easy to raise up that 10% to 15% or 20% as if you're earning more as you get more senior and you succeed professionally. If you're disciplined about not massively changing your consumption habits, for sure. And, and it doesn't it mm. doesn't feel like a sacrifice. I think that's right. The first book I ever read on money, or to any interest in whatsoever, was the one that everyone tells you, the one you already referenced, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read it before I was an entrepreneur, so this idea of this entrepreneur earning more than the professor, the middle class, was really interesting to me, and I really resonated with it, like a lot of people do, right? That's why it's one of the greats. There are two concepts that I, I almost, like, I still kind of refuse to get my head around, interestingly. Uh, one is pay yourself first, um, even though I'm sure it's the right thing to do and everything else, I get it, but I just, you know... Uh, still suffer from wanting to be loved and nice and so hasn't really had to happen to me right but I guess in the in reality I, I know I wouldn't be able to do that and the second concept that I've never really got my head around is the fact that he doesn't buy property he just rents the whole time and you've just talked about this as well and it is the to me the really interesting topic that people are often surprised about that those that really understand wealth and money don't buy property talk to me a little bit about that the minute I said I mentioned the word rent, I, I, I thought we should probably unpack that. So I have, so there's a whole chapter in, in How to Own the World called Creating Financial Surplus, and it's quite property focused. And and people sort of view me as being an investor at property bear, like you're perennially bearish about property and you've been wrong. And, you know, and, and it's like, it's not my position at all. My position is very simply that most people don't think deeply enough about property and the role it plays in their wealth and they don't think about the numbers and, and most importantly they don't understand the difference between nominal price increases and real price increases so price increases that are because of the devaluation in your in your currency um so you know oh my, i bought my property for a million quid now it's worth two million quid okay but if the pound now buys half as much as what it used to buy um you know whether that's because eggs are up 50 percent or breads up, or you know we're allowing this cost of living crisis and so, so you're, if you're measuring the value of your property with pounds sterling as a yardstick, that's, a, that's an elastic yardstick, which isn't telling you very much. And one of the ways I illustrate that point is, you know, imagine a property is a million quid property in 2007. It was a $2 million property, right? 
And just imagine for the sake of argument that it still costs a million quid, which I know is a thought experiment and not true, but there are parts of the UK where like in the Northeast, for example, not much pro progress has been made with property prices in various parts of the UK. You know, this isn't Notting Hill or Chelsea in London. It's a, but just to keep the thought experiment, you had a million pound house was a $2 million house. Now it's a $1.2 million house. So in dollars, which by the way, is what about 80% of the world's stuff is traded in, whether that's timber or cotton or coffee or you know gold or oil or whatever, you're $800,000 worse off. Now, I know in real life, you bought a £1 million property in central London, that's probably now a £2 million property, how many years later. But okay, so how much forward progress have you made? Well, you know, now it's a $2.4 million property, and it was a $2 million property. So in dollars, you've only actually made a $400,000 uplift over 15 years, you know, which isn't that exciting. So and so the only reason I rent right now, the two reasons is one, I'm being entrepreneurial and I need my capital to deploy in my company. Um, and so, I, you know, all the ill-gotten gains of the last 20 years are X and X is ballasting me, perhaps not being able to pay myself for three years and paying the rent and everything else every month. Um, so that's for me personally, that's an obvious choice. But actually, bigger picture, um, I, I think that if 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 as they are at the moment, if properties are eight and a half times average salaries. So if landlords are making rental yields of 2% on the current value of the property, which is possible to achieve in certain parts of the country, that probably tells you you're better to rent than buy, in my view. Like just, you know, these are very simple rules of thumb because I could rent the house I currently live in for 50 years, you know, assuming that it didn't move capital-wise in real terms, not in nominal terms, I could rent this house for 50 years and I would have spent the same amount of money as if I bought it, except that I would have spent it over 50 years instead of all in a one a today with a massive bank loan. And of course, I wouldn't have paid any interest. I wouldn't have paid any interest to a bank. So I just think, you know, I get that Brits in particular are very wedded to being able to paint stuff the color you want to paint it and being able to put in a kitchen you want to put in all that stuff. I just think this British obsession with, you know, the property ladder, you know, people forget the property ladder can be a property snake, especially if you look at things in real terms and you have to inflation adjust the currency you're using to, to interrogate whether property's done well for you or not. And you're accounting properly for the cost of capital. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I rent right now. I will buy a house in the future, assuming everything works out um, entrepreneurially, but I probably won't buy one until rental yields are more like five or six percent. And I think that's where we're going to go because that's where interest rates are going. It's like the 50-year average of the US 10-year is about 6%. And it's been as high as like 13 or 14%. And it's obviously been very low for the last few years with this strange post-global financial crisis world and QE and everything else. But, you know, if, if, the long, if we go back, to, if we mean revert, interest rates are going to be 6%, right? And so, and, I, and it, it does pain me that, sort of people calibrate their lives to you know a working couple where both the, the the both partners work then might be spending 50 or 60 percent of their income on a mortgage that's calibrated with interest rates of two percent well that's just a, the fact that so many people have been willing to make that decision is why property prices are where they're at and why there's in my considered opinion we're likely to have an early 90s experience again People just have needed to be more mindful about what the future might bring. And, you know, we have all too much of this, like, oh, Bitcoin's only ever going to go up is one. You know, oh, interest rates are, you know, 2%, they might go to 3%. No, they might go to 10%. You know, oh, house prices never fall. Well, you know, they can fall 30 40 50%, um, depending on where you are and when you bought in the cycle. And I think people just forget that. Andrew has spent the last eight years or so specialising in biotech, first through working as an equity salesperson in an investment bank, and then through setting up his fund. He's working on his next book, which is called Our Future is Biotech. Has that experience changed what he wrote in How to Own the World? In a 100 minus your age consideration, let's say you're 50, and boldly you should be 50% in aggressive stuff and 50% in defensive stuff, the fact that I'm doing something in biotech would sit as one of the things in your aggressive stuff. So it doesn't change the big picture. I'm mean, categorically not saying, oh, now everyone should just rush out and put 100% in biotech. Like, absolutely not. It's just one of the higher, along with smaller companies. Well, I'm a big believer in smaller companies generally. 
Um, there, there's loads of academic evidence that over the long run, they, they outperform by several percentage points. Like UK smaller companies have, have produced four times better returns than UK property in the last 50 years. Four times. How many people know that? You're making me really happy because that's arguably where I feel like I'm most stupid is I um, have been quite a prolific angel investor over many years and have over 50 startup investments of various sizes. But obviously, you know, the benefit in the UK, again, tax tax benefits of EIS and SEIS are absolutely incredible. But I do it because it's, it's extremely fucking fun to be on a journey with all these crazy people with these genuinely fascinating interests and ideas that I don't have time to learn about. I get to vicariously learn along the way. And hopefully a couple of them actually do really well and make outsized returns and it all works. Don't know. But you certainly I didn't expect you to say this. I'll be honest. I thought you're about to confirm and I was like, shit, I've done property thinks that's stupid. I wonder what he thinks about startup investing. So good news. But it all sits in the firmament within that structure, right? You know, property is part of your defense a bit, I would say. And, um, and, and then biotech. No, so the only, so biotech is really just, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier, because we live in a, a really bad equity culture and most people aren't invested in equities. And actually, billions of pounds has been sucked into crypto in the last few years, which has not gone into small companies coming out of Oxford or Cambridge that might cure cancer, which I think is a massive tragedy and a, savage misallocation of resources you know and why is that well it's because people promoting crypto are unregulated so they can literally get on tiktok and go you will make 200 percent a year you know bitcoin's going to a million dollars listen to me listen to me and i'd go to prison if i said that about my biotech companies that i believe in even though i think their fundamentals are vastly better than any altcoin or or, or crypto what whatever your views on crypto i just think the value creation of a business is actually solving human problems you know like a business that cures breast cancer will be more valuable than an altcoin that's got some interesting project around the blockchain, in my view, on the, over the long run, right? And I'm not decrying, I think, blockchain and I think that, you know, Web 3.0 is very interesting for sure, right? And, and that's a new frontier to be explored. But, but biotech, I mean, basically to me, the, the, the biotech thing is you create real value, economic value, by solving human problems. That is always have, always will, right? The most economic value is solving human problems. The last century, I talked about the fact that we've had 9% uh, returns from equities in the United States going back to 1872. That has basically been underpinned by physics and tech, right? Whether that's the automotive industry, you know, like locomotives, automotives, aviation, transistors, silicon, um, and then, uh, obviously, the internet and smartphones, right? Um, and so the last century, I describe as being about physics and tech, and it's driven 9% returns, and it's given us airplanes and travel and smartphones and, you know, Sky TV and Netflix and all this great stuff, right? Most of which I think is great stuff. Like, um, And it's enriched our lives, and it's made our lives immeasurably better. The next century is going to be about biology and biotech. And there's a very simple reason for that is because most of the most intractable problems we still confront as a species concern biological systems. So most obviously, the most of the problems we haven't solved yet are problems of biology. You know, most of our biggest challenges as species are around biotech in the therapeutic setting. But actually, it's about much more than that, because biotech has a massive role to play in rolling back environmental degradation. Like biotech could be like the key that unlocks you know, a lot of our environmental problems. Cell cultured meat. So basically you, you have a steak in front of you or a lobster or sea bass, which you, it tastes, smells, looks, and is genetically exactly the same as a steak that came from murdering a cow, but it was grown in a lab a mile up the road. Now that's a very real prospect for the next two decades. And, you know, right now people go, oh, Franken meat, that's disgusting. I'll never eat that. But that's just nonsense because human beings... We hedonically adjust. You know, in the, in the Victorian era, there were people writing about train madness when the trains first came. They, they were saying that if you got, went 20 miles an hour in a train, you'd go mad or possibly die because that's how siloed humanity is. Now people in China tra routinely travel at 200 miles an hour. Imagine if you'd said to a Victorian in a stovepipe pap in like 1850, by the way, don't worry about 20 miles an hour. A century plus from now, Chinese and Japanese people will travel at 200 miles an hour in a train they would have thought you were completely mad. And I think in the same way, people think it's mad that we could consider having cell-cultured meat will be wrong. And 20 years from now, it'll be perfectly routine for all of our 
produce, you know, vegetables, whatever, will be grown hydroponically up the road and all of our meat will be cell-conscious meat. And we will have rewilded 90% of the world's land that's currently used for livestock farming, which will have massively solved a bunch of the challenges around the environment. Now, those are all technical challenges that only biotech companies can solve. Okay, so it's, it's 2023. What do you think is the one bit of advice that you want to share with listeners for someone who wants to start taking charge of their financial lives this year? What's the first actionable step? Where should they start and what should they do? Find 10% of your income, whatever money comes into you every month, however that comes. And so, you know, if you are an entrepreneur and your income's quite chunky and lumpy and maybe doesn't come in like a monthly salary, doesn't matter. When it comes in, take 10% of it and put it in something sensible. And if you're, you know, more ordinarily employed, 10% of your monthly income, to your point earlier about kind of recalibrating your humility and your expectations about life. I mean, I often talk about long run financial success being kind of 90% admin and habit and 10% asset selection. And it really is. Like once you've got 10% coming in every month of surplus, just let it build up as cash to begin with. And actually, that's what we suggest is because you need some cash to ballast a period of uncertainty in your life. You know, it's prudent to have three, six months of, of like your, your monthly income in case you lose your job or, you know, you, have, you need to lend a family member some money or whatever might happen. So that's your rainy day pot, we call it. And then once you've done that, gently, gradually just understand what the MSCI world is, what the S&P 500 is, how you can just, or the FTSE 100, you know, the foot, which is potentially quite interesting at the moment because British equities are cheap, but I think Britain has, sadly, Britain has some real structural problems, which probably means it deserves to be cheap. Um, but, but you know, the MSCI world's, to me, a bit of a no-brainer because it's, you know, exposure to like 1,600 companies globally. You don't have to think about it. You can put that in an ISA, which means you don't have to pay any tax on the proceeds. And just get that 10% going every month, every month without fail, and forget about it. Don't look at it. Don't listen to the news. Don't worry about Ukraine or just ignore the news and just do something sensible every month with at least 10% of your income and it will pay dividends for sure. One of the most fallacious things I see at the moment online a lot is, oh, it's so hard for millennials. Like, you know, the, the interest rates are where they're at, property prices are where they're at, blah, blah. None of that matters on a 30-year view, truly. Like, none of that changes anything I put in How to Own the World. If you, if you own the world and if you invest from now for the rest of your life, these things all come out in the wash. You know, you, you, you could own, you could benefit from a massive run. You know, equities could be tricky for the next three or four years. Who knows? But it doesn't matter if you, because then you're buying them more inexpensively if you're buying every month by direct debit, right? And just if you just do that with a very, very long concept of why you're doing it, um, I think, that, you know, you'll be very well served no matter what happens in the news or to humanity or whatever. And I have to say, you know, if uh, one of the things we love to do on this show is is inspire people to take change and live better lives. And if you haven't tried a process like picking a word for the year and you're curious, why not make your word for this year finance and genuinely a good place to start, I found was how to own the world. I strongly recommend it. Um, I'm not paid to do so, as you know, we only met today. Um, but it was really it was really trans. <laughs> And I'm very, and thank you. I'm very, very grateful, Dan. It's really kind, honestly. Never gets old. Oh, it was really transformational. And I read a lot of books. I read a lot of books. Um, I read 50, 60 books a year because I do Audible and I walk a lot. Um, and, you know, that and The Psychology of Money, I read probably, I think, like six or seven books on finance. Uh, number one and two, they're the ones that really had a lasting impression on me. Um, and very, very helpful and dumbed down for people like myself as well, which is extremely valuable. Where can people find you? So if they're interested in the book, where can they find you? So very simple. So the business is called plainenglishfinance.com, um, which is actually plainenglishfinance.com or plainenglishfinance.co.uk. They both go to the same place. Amazing, Andrew. Thank you so much for your time, mate. Thank you. It's been delightful, Dan. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Andrew Craig author of How to Own the World and founder of Plain English Finance. One of the things I really enjoyed about this interview was hearing about how these moments in history, where money and finance come together with technology and innovation, have created a better world. And I loved his positive outlook for how these things compound together and where we might be going in the future. Because like I said at the beginning, these things are really important. And the more we can understand them, the better off we'll be. 
One more thing. You'll notice this month we're testing out a couple of different sorts of guests like Andrew, less about their journey and more about what you can learn to improve your life. Still experts, but more focused on you than them. Now, we want you to tell us if this is something you want more of on the show. And the best way we can measure that is to see if it gets shared more than usual. Whether it's WhatsApp, Instagram stories, Twitter or LinkedIn, you choose. If we see more activity than usual, we're going to take it as a sign. So over to you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcasts, Will Stolleman. See you next week.